Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Take two, Craig. Welcome back to the show. Uh, why don't you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, thank you very much, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Craig Ciccone. I'm an independent historian based in Highland Park, Michigan. It's a small city inside of Detroit. Um, and my research, I've delved into my research for the last almost 35 years, including a wide variety of subjects. But... What we're here to talk about is the JFK assassination, and and hopefully we'll also be able to talk about Fred Hampton. So, when it comes to the JFK assassination, would you like to tell everybody a little bit about where your research focuses? Absolutely. Um, my contribution to the JFK case, amongst the thousands and thousands of books that have already been written, is a database of eyewitnesses to the assassination. Now, that might be a little misnomer because they're not actually eyewitnesses. I have also cataloged all of the people who were in the entire motorcade, vehicle by vehicle, including the motorcycles, including the pilot car, which, which was the first car, and then the, you know, or the advanced car was the first car, the pilot car was the last car, um, and people who may or may not have heard something. So I, I wanted to include as many witnesses as I could possibly find. And it's been a, it's been a, you know, a 30 year odyssey to do that. Um, it, the, the advances in technology has helped because collections of interviews that the law enforcement did and the government did is now available online. So that really helped me. Um, so what I call the master list of witnesses, it's a book, it's a, it's a over a hundred page book, um, cataloging as many witnesses as I could find their occupation, where they were standing or sitting, uh, who they were with, if they were with anybody, and their impressions of the shots that they heard, um, plus any other interesting tidbits about the eyewitness or about their uh, statements that they made or the, the te te testimony that they gave to the Warren Commission or the depositions. Um, and then I, in, included with that is a 24 by 36 map of Dealey Plaza that was done by an architect friend of mine. And on that, I plot all of the witnesses and as many cars in the motorcade as I could fit, because it doesn't really show all of Main Street, right? It's, it's just that top of the pear shape of Dealey Plaza that's on my map. Uh, but it's, but it's, I think it shows about 345 witnesses and my list catalogs about 412 witnesses. Was it surprising to you to like, I mean, the number of films, I only knew about the Zapruder film, but then if you look up like the actual number of, and it makes sense, the number of people that were probably filming that day, I mean, that event, the president's coming by, I mean, were you able to look at those videos and then pinpoint exactly where those people were located on your map? Well, that's an excellent question because one of the problems with the interviews that law enforcement did, whether it was in 1963, 1964, or even uh, when when the House Select Committee on Assassinations reinvestigated investigated the assassination, their interviews of the witnesses were very vague, and either they didn't have the time or the willingness to extract 
more information from these witnesses or to clear up any vagaries that were in their statements, like where they were standing. That's 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 one of the main focuses or or of of inconsistencies. So whether they interviewed a witness on the street or back at at FBI uh, at the field office in the, the FBI's field office or the Dallas police uh, office or the sheriff's office. It doesn't matter where they were, unless the the law enforcement officer or the interviewer actually took them to the place that they were standing in Dilly Plaza and say, show me where you were standing. There really was no way to pinpoint it other than their verbal recollection of where they were. So they would say things like 75 feet west of the Texas School Book Depository or the intersection of, of Houston and Elm. You know what I mean? So So 25 feet, 30 feet, Sometimes I even used yards, so then I have to convert that. So the plotting of the witnesses, the vast majority of them is guesswork. It's the best available evidence that I have based on what they said. Now, sometimes it helps because they went in groups. This was at lunchtime, so a lot of people went out of the buildings that were in Dealey Plaza and stood together. So if one person didn't say where they were, a person they were with gave that information. So again, it's that trying to whittle down the best available evidence that I have. And if I could confirm their their location and identity on films or photographs, that that was that's the most optimal. Um, the Zapruder film certainly did it because um, the footage of the advanced motorcycles that Zapruder used to to test his film out before the motorcade appeared and turned onto Elm Street. That gave us a wonderful look at the north side of Elm and all of those people, most of whom were from the Texas School Book Depository, you know, employees of the Texas School Book Depository. Wonderful uh, shot of them, and they are easily identified because of what they were wearing. So over the years, there have been many researchers who have actually located the, those people and interviewed them and showed them pictures of the Zapristils of the Zapruder film and asked, can you point, can you find yourself? And a lot of them did. So it, it's been that, that try to piece together all of those different variables to try to locate witnesses or put them in, in the most reasonable position that they were in. Is it difficult for you to look through some of these witness testimonies? I feel like I, 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 from what I've heard from a memory expert, the only time you can ever remember something that's traumatic is usually if you have like some type of war experience or you've been in combat before, because you, when shots are going off, you're able to think about, you know, be able to assess your situation, which I find it weird that if you look at the colorized photos of when the shots were going down, you see the media camera guys right up on John Newman's face or whoever those people are that are lying down on the ground and they're just taking photos. I'm like, is nobody panicking that their shots being fired right now? No, they were taking pictures of people panicking. But but when you're a journalist, especially a photojournalist, back in those days, those guys just had an innate sense of, okay, something's happening. I've got to shoot it, no matter the danger to myself. You know, um, I, I've got to record this. I've got to, I've got to, uh, you know, for posterity. Uh, they were just doing their jobs and did it very well. But they were filming the people who were actually panicking. But, but excellent point. I mean, how much can we rely on eyewitness testimony? Not that much. But the, the I guess the good thing is that there were so many witnesses. The House of the Committee on Assassinations claimed 
the, that they were able to locate. And when I say locate, I, I, I don't know what that means because they were very unspecific in what they meant, but 694 witnesses. So is that you interviewed them, you found them, you identified them through photographs, or you simply counted the number of bodies that you could see along any given point with the photographs and the films. They didn't make that clear. So when you have a, such a group of witnesses like that, you take the, the largest common denominator um, instead of individual eyewitnesses, like the Warren Commission tried to do with, with you know any number of people. Um, Howard Brennan was their star witness, and he turned out to be completely unreliable, not because he didn't have good memory, but because, well, he, he um, <laughs> uh, he wasn't in the place that he said he was. We could actually see that in the Zapruder film and other films. Um, so he exaggerated certain, certain things and was inconsistent, but that goes to eyewitness testimony. So you take as many eyewitnesses as you can and the largest common denominator, and you try to see, you know, the patterns in what they say, or in fact, because we have film, what they did. One of the most compelling arguments for additional shots, other than the Texas School Depository, is the direction that people ran, including law enforcement officers. So these are people who are trained. Granted, they are they are not expecting gunfire at the, at this at this point, you know not just in history, but, you know, they just weren't expecting it. But, but the fact that, that there was a cooperative movement of witnesses that, that lends itself to looking harder at, uh, or more critically, at those witnesses who said that they thought shots came from either behind the grassy knoll, over by the, by the uh, triple underpass, or anywhere else. Um, so we, we don't rely on eyewitnesses to prove or disprove something. We use it in conjunction with other evidence to make a case. Well, it's the lone nutter question is, is if there were shots coming from the grass, you know, why were people running towards an active shooter? It's like, what is that? It's like, well, there, there's a parking lot there. Maybe they were running to their cars. I mean, I feel like with Dealey Plaza, the amount of echoes that were going on, I've heard seen statements from people saying shots came from the knoll, shots came from the building. I would have to think that the people that heard shots come from the sixth floor of the building probably started running towards the knoll because it's away from the um, Texas school book depository. But then you got the, people that also heard i mean people are hearing shots all over the place some one person said they heard it from like a sewer and it's just like i don't know i can't get there but i look at it like if a cop is running towards the knoll the cop is not running away from the gunfire his job would be to investigate into that so that just means maybe they felt safer if a cop was with them that maybe the cop so, so there's like a lot of confusion there but no, you're absolutely right. There, there could very well have been uh, some witnesses who were actually running to their cars because part of Dealey Plaza, the, the southern part of Dealey Plaza on Commerce Street, it was a parking lot, basically. They had stopped all traffic. So people were actually had, actually had their cars parked on, well, even Main Street on the other side of the, uh, on the, other side of the triple underpass. But people could have been running to their cars. Certainly the... the um, employees of the Texas School Book Depository who used the parking lot behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll as a parking lot. They could have gone to their cars, but I think for, for a majority of them, it was fight or flight. And I think for a lot of them, it was a fight. 
they were they were looking to try to trap someone or to see what they could see um, without you know any any concern for their own safety. You know, I, I just think it was an automatic reflexive you know uh, reaction. Uh, and luckily they did because what did those police officers and those witnesses find when they went behind the picket fence? Secret Service agents flashing their credentials. When we know that all of Kennedy's Secret Service detail was in the motorcade, in cars going to Parkland Hospital with a wounded president. None of them jumped out, like like the like the, the photographers. None of them jumped out of their cars and and started chasing people or trying to track down witnesses. No, they were in the motorcade and they were gone. So there were no Secret Service agents there. There was a lot of weird things about the motorcade. There should have been a vehicle in front of the president's vehicle that was a press vehicle that should have been filming because usually they get a front shot that way. And there wasn't one right there. So as soon as the shots went off, he could immediately just speed right to the hospital, which I think is I mean, I people would say, oh, it's because they changed routes. So I was like, yeah, but they had that route published a couple of days before. Like it wasn't just like a spontaneous. Oh, we're going to take a left right down here. There's no way. Right. Right. Now, uh, there were cars in front of Kennedy's uh, limousine, but but they were they were advanced cars. Uh, the car that um, I think Forrest Sorrells, who was the head of Secret Service, was in. And I think it was Jesse Curry, the chief of police, was in in the pilot car in front of the the um, in front of the presidential limousine. But you can see in some of the uh, press photos pointing towards the triple underpass when Clint Hill was getting on the back of the limousine. There's a still shot. I'm sure everyone's very familiar with it. And it shows the pilot car underneath the triple underpass. So there was a, quite a distance between that pilot car and Kennedy's motor, uh, limousine. But uh, it, it was basically just to radio back to Secret Service agents in the back of President Kennedy what was happening, you know, if something needed to be cleared out or, you know, uh, moved or, or what have you. It was, it was more of a security thing. Um did you find it yeah, weird? Did, did have, have, he did have vehicles in front of him. Did you find it weird that when you look at the Zapruder film, Jackie Kennedy, when she jumps on the back, she seems like she doesn't go that far back. But then when you look at the Knicks film, the Knicks film makes it seem like she went a lot farther back, which is I know people bring up the example like the Zapruder film was edited. And trust me, I've stayed agnostic on that. But then when I see the you other know, film, I, I recommend you do that. Continue to be agnostic when it comes to the Zipper film. When I see the other films and then I look at like uh, my buddy, Mike Griffith, point this out to me. He's like, if you watch the boy in the back next to his father, he's behind his father. They're not even a split millisecond. He's beside his father clapping like so fast, like it's inhumanly possible to like slow it. So, I mean, it makes a little bit of sense there, but. I it's that's the thing is like those other angles of those other films really add another perspective into that. And I would think, I mean, I remember bringing up an example that someone's camera was taken. Um, oh, many people's camera were probably taken. So, I, I mean, that's a, that's, I, well, you can't say anything. You can't make an excuse for that. That's just suspicious as hell. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you talk about the Zapruder film, the, whether or not you believe that it was altered or it was the, you know, that it is the original film that was taken uh, or that it was spliced to death. The fact that even if it was a pristine, even if we knew and verified that it was the authentic thing and nothing had been done to it to tamper with it or to change it or alter it. The fact that we rely so much on a silent film, the Warren Commission did or the FBI did in order to establish shots, how do you establish an audible with a silent film? 
So, okay, they had to look at the reactions of the men in the car and the women in the car, but that's all subjective. Because I'm, I'm one of the people who believe that Conley wasn't really sh showing signs of being hit until 273, which is right before Kennedy's headshot. You know, so it, it's all subjective and it's all interpretation of what you're looking at because there is no sound. So we cannot establish with the Zapruder film all that much, even even less so if we don't believe its veracity, if we don't believe that it that it is what, in fact, Abraham Zapruder shot that that morning. So I got one question about the motorcade. Then I got another one about the uh, school book depository. But when it comes to the motorcade, where was Lyndon Johnson's vehicle or where was he sitting in the motorcade? He uh, the the mayor's car because he was in. No, I'm sorry. He was he was in the vice presidential car, which is right behind President Kennedy's Secret Service car. So you've got the presidential motorcade. You've got the Secret Service car. Then you've got the car with Lyndon Johnson in it. I think people put a lot that Lyndon, two cars behind Kennedy. I think people put a lot that Lyndon Johnson orchestrated the plot. I don't think that what I do think is he definitely part of the cover up. Sure. But when it comes to you wouldn't sit your car right behind President Kennedy if you were going to have a shooter trying to take him out. I mean, you're sitting in a car with your wife. And even if it was a bubble top, those bubble tops weren't bulletproof. The whole point of the bubble top would deter shooters from shooting at it because they thought most people thought it was bulletproof and it wasn't. Yeah, well, if the if the if the bubble top had gone on, at least it would have it would have impeded someone's uh, view of the occupants in the motorcade. And unless you knew ahead of time where they were going to be sitting, I mean, you knew Secret Service agents were going to be in the front, but who's in the jump seats and which side? Because through his tour of Texas, they didn't always sit the Connellys in front, the Kennedys in the back, the men on the right, the women on the left. They didn't always do that. So at least the bubble top would have, like I said, it, it would have prevented someone from seeing who was where. When you're placing and you're kind of looking at the motorcade and you're recreating the whole scenario, did you look at other motorcades to see if there was anything that was a little bit different besides the bubble top? Like I know they had Kennedy's family physician, like four cars at the back of it. And it's like, didn't he have some type of medical condition? If he would have got a cut or something, he'd have to be hit with like a steroid shot or something. Well, he, he was already receiving daily uh, uh, cortisone uh, steroid shots. I, I but I don't know that that his that his physical condition would have required that kind of immediate attention. Of of course, Doctor Berkeley traveled with him all the you know everywhere he went, and he also had two other physicians who were in different cities or being brought into different cities where he would where he would arrive uh, for those for those treatments, not only for his back but also his Addison's disease. So, um, but no, I, you know, I, and I'm not, and I'm not aware of any, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Cause like I said, there are thousands and thousands of books on the assassination. Uh, if there has ever been a study of other motorcades, whether it's, uh, dignitaries from other countries, uh, certainly they've, they've mentioned De Gaulle before and, and what happens during a De Gaulle, uh, motorcade just in a general way, not, not specific days, where we could say on this day his motorcade looked like this why didn't kennedy's but but it is it is undeniable that on november 26 1963 many of the uh basic security principles if not rules were absolutely broken uh or or um norms were not followed 
Uh, and one of them being, of course, um, the, the president, the vice president traveling together, which is why after the assassination, it is now, well, not illegal, but it, but it is forbidden that the president and the vice president traveled together. Because you remember that that Johnson's Secret Service agent was really the only one who who who, well, besides Clint Hill, acted in a protective way. He jumped over the the seat onto Lady Bird Johnson and Ralph Yarborough, uh, right onto to Johnson, and that's how they rode all the way to Parkland Hospital. Johnson gets out of his car and he's holding his arm because a you know a two hundred and some pound Secret Service agent just landed on him. People who were at Parkland thought he had been shot too. So, you know, so from a security standpoint, it was absolutely ridiculous and uh, indefensible that they not only traveled together, but they also traveled two cars apart. Well, there were three future presidents in Dallas at that day, and Nixon was at a bottling convention signing babies and kissing foreheads. Or was he? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, maybe, um, he, maybe he was in the sewer grate. I don't know. Uh, when it comes to a normal procedure, that should have been done after that incident just happened and Kennedy's getting rushed to Parkland Hospital. The area should have been cordoned off. Was there anything that you started to, I mean, did you trace what was going on? I know you, you mentioned people taking vague statements and things of that sort. I'm only guessing because we said this in the last time, which was that they probably thought the FBI or somebody was going to do a more thorough investigation when honestly a kid with a freaking camera could have did a better job than any of the investigation into that. No, absolutely. Um, well, part of the problem was that you still had the rest of the motorcade vehicles to to follow and to get out of Dealey Plaza before they, in fact, could cut everything off. As I said, Commerce Street and even some areas close to Dealey Plaza on Main Street had people's personal cars parked there. So while the motorcade, the rest of the motorcade procession is trying to get through Dealey Plaza to follow the, the lead, the president, they didn't know at that point where he was going, but they were just trying to catch up. All of the chaos that we've already talked about, you've got photographers and journalists jumping out of their moving cars to take pictures, right? And to write things down, but then realizing that, hey, we got to go to Parkland Hospital. The car is taking off. So they're running alongside the car, jumping into the car. So that, that you know, just creates even more chaos. Um, so I think that allowed for traffic to continue to, to, to go through Dealey Plaza. And because of the, um, the sheer shock of what had happened and the unexpected, uh, that it was completely unexpected, I, I just don't think the police were ready for it. And so did not do a good enough job to cordon off the area, to stop traffic from flowing, to, you know, get as many men deployed down there as possible you know the communication immediately to direct what's going to be happening okay we need to have a search of all of the buildings we need to have a grid by grid search of the the, the north and the south knolls uh we need to take as many witness statements as possible none of that was done and and you know some in some aspects you can you can blame simply just the um the chaos of the situation um and but as things died down and calmed down, um, some of the other discrepancies and and uh, unprofessionalism can't be so easily dismissed. Yeah, like the Harper fragment wasn't found until either it was a day later or a couple of days later, and it was no the next the next morning, Saturday morning. Yep. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a that's a big miss if you're missing a giant skull fragment. Like nobody's paying attention. That's a huge miss. That's a huge miss. So when it comes to Lee Bowers, do you trust her? Him? Or him? That's a him? Is it, it sounds I don't know. I've never seen his her face. I've only read the name. I just pictured it's a girl. No, Lee Lee Bowers Jr. was was the, the radio or the the um signal man for the uh for the railroad tracks that went over the triple underpass um so he was in in a in a uh, basically a tower it looks like a, a small shack or a building it's a two-floor it was a two-floor thing uh and he's on the top and he's looking out the windows of course that you can see all the way around uh watching the trains come and go and radioing to the engineers and things like that so he had a perfect he had a perfect view of the Elm Street extension, which is the little street in front of the Texas School Book Depository that uh, led right into the parking lot where all the cars were. Then, uh, of course, the trains themselves. So he had a perfect view of everything that was behind the scenes. And uh, I think his his testimony has been is absolutely compelling. Unfortunately, he he was he was he died under mysterious circumstances in 1966. So we could not further question him because if you read his testimony, which I do talk about in my book, uh, or I highlight in my book, uh, the questioning was simply, uh, it was, they had no intention of (laughs) really wanting to find out what he saw because whenever he gave an answer that was contrary to what they had already established, that is the Warren Commission and the FBI, then they either cut him off, changed the subject, or didn't allow him to um, go back and, and expound upon it. Expound upon it. Uh, actually, the scene was also portrayed in JFK, where Jim Garrison, late at night, is reading the, the testimony in, in the 26 volumes of the Warren Commission, and he's reading Lee Bowers' testimony. And he says, ask the question, ask the question. And of course, they never asked the question. So uh, I think given his consistency in his statements, as few as they were, and the fact that's really all we have, we, there, there's no reason not to trust his, his testimony of seeing three men driving through the, the parking lot. One of them seemed to have a microphone up in front of his mouth or his seeing people by the fence and his description of them saying it looked like he had a rifle in his hand um so i i there's there's no reason that i've ever seen that 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 would give us pause uh about his testimony when you're looking at testimonies who do you trust more that did i guess a proper job at getting answers from witnesses i'm pretty sure through the warren commission you can tell that a lot of witnesses were kind of being nudged for answers or pushed in a certain direction and they never asked like the serious questions like you mentioned but even the house like committee on assassinations they just gave up when immediately when there was a roadblock in front of their face if there was like i don't recall it was like okay well i'm not going to go down this avenue anymore it's like well hang on a second ask again absolutely it was that same kind of thing. It was that same, you know, whether they were um, pressed for time, they didn't have the money or the, the budget to to um, prep these witnesses, to even allow these witnesses to read their previous test statements or testimony, to see if there was there any any inaccuracies from 1963-64. Um, I'm really not familiar with the, Hiska's staff 
and how they address the eyewitnesses. That is, we don't have the same kind of testimony of witnesses, eyewitnesses that we had with the Warren Commission, even though that was, you know, uh, that was completely insufficient, given how many witnesses we had. The Warren Commission didn't didn't depose or interview very many of them, but at least we had their the transcripts of their testimony and or depositions. Uh, that wasn't the case with with Hiska. So I really I'm not familiar with you know, what they were trying to do. Were they simply trying to find new witnesses, which apparently they did, 694, that's a lot of witnesses, uh, but but these either staff reports or papers, working papers, I've, I haven't seen them. Did you listen to my episode with Blakey? Because No, I did not. When I started looking back into what he was saying, he kept saying, you got to understand, what I was hired to do was to keep the credibility of the people that died as if they were alive and like keep that name intact. And he kept saying it to me. And I, I look at the HSCA when I looked at them, I told him, I was like, I don't think they gave you a chance. Like you, the way that they were using you was more like a second run through of being like, Hey, see, we did a second investigation. It was all good. Because if you look at it, I mean, there were so many aspects of embarrassing the agency. You see that in the 2021 release of documents with Garrison. There's a straight up document that says Garrison's attempt to uh, embarrass the agency. Now, I've never talked about Garrison. I've never went into Fletcher Prouty. I've never went into Ruth Payne or any of that type of stuff besides talking to maybe Max Good on my show. But there's just these things that are extra and you don't need to see it. But what I can point to is when an agency says attempts to embarrass us, that is a dangerous thing. And, you know, from studying other political assassinations, which I'm sure I'll have you back on to talk about MLK and RFK at some points. But Fred Hampton, uh, RFK, MLK, you start realizing that, like, there's this area of secrecy and what they're deeming it to be secret. What is that? But when an agency says your investigation into trying to find the truth might embarrass us or make us look bad. Well, now I'm not only suspecting that you're hiding something, I also think that you're probably going to, you know, Clinton me. You're going to kill me. That's going to happen. I mean, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm just saying that's not a good thing when you're looking at members or citizens of the United States of America who the government's supposed to work for us. And you're looking at it like they're looking at you like a security risk. Now, what? how many things did they label in other countries that were security risks that ended up being dealt away with? So when you look at that as your own population or the civilians you're supposed to be protecting even other fellow law enforcement and then you look at the eyewitnesses and the numbers that died in mysterious circumstances you start to look at it like all right this might not be so conspiratorial yep it's just the the overall handling of the investigation from the fbi which the warren commission relied upon to do their investigative work because obviously the warren commission the members themselves aren't going to be doing ballistic tests or you know toxicology tests or you know things like that so obviously they rely on the FBI. The problem is the FBI already had a preconceived conclusion and submitted their report two weeks after the assassination. They were still interviewing people in August of 64. So how you can hand over a report that then the Warren Commission will base its entire investigation, uh, staff investigation, and writing the report on is beyond me. It shows that it was a preconceived notion, much like Blakey. Our job is to make sure that the American public knows that we're still in control, that a foreign agency was not responsible 
and is about to invade us. Because again, think about the time, the context of the time and people fearing Russia, Cuba, any number of, of, of entities uh, because we had made enemies at that point. And so their job was to placate and to make the American public feel safe. That was their mandate. And the fact that Blakey said pretty much the same, not the same thing, but I'm saying he's, his mandate has nothing to do with the truth or getting at the truth, that, that the legacy, the memory, the tragedy and uh, trauma that the Kennedy family has gone through is worthy of or, or, or necessitates that, that pursuit of the truth regardless of, of, of what happens to our intelligence agencies or whether or not they're embarrassed or whether or not they won't get the same appropriations or God forbid that they even be shut down because of illegal activity. I mean, that's what it comes down to, I think, is that it's the preservation of these agencies. Um, they don't want to be embarrassed because, well, that, that will then alter people's perceptions of their invincibility or their necessity even. So um, I think bringing the agencies into question about what, what about their covert action and all these types of things that start going on. I well, that's what, the church, that's what the church committee did in 1975. I know. I've read the whole report. It's amazing. Absolutely. And that was long overdue. That is holding these agencies to account for what they do in the name of the public, of the American people. Um so yeah, it is what they do in our name behind closed doors with how did you get that money and what are you doing with it? You know, um, that, that's, that's been a concern for, for a very long time. And, um, well, you have these people that, you know, defend the Warren commission or they say that everything was okie dokie and it was just one lone agent. Well, I had Blakey say that Oswald was intelligence. Thank God that was good to get him on record saying that, which I mean, I, I think the number of documents, like I said, I think he was trying, but I also think he knew to play ball. Like, I mean, he is a government worker as well, too. Um, but when you look at the people that defend the Warren commission, there are some things you look at where it's like, okay, that makes a little bit of sense, but there's a lot that doesn't. And when you start seeing the people that defend it, it's like, what are you defending? And it's like, are they people trying to protect or be these patriots? I'm a patriot at heart, but I also want to correct evil and know where that lies. And I think when you look at what this isn't just about embarrassing the agencies anymore or, you know, transparency. This is an aspect that nobody is ever going to believe a single word that any of these organizations say ever. We already basically don't in a lot of aspects, but this is like the whole house of cards falls. People are going to start going through your whole books of every historical event and see if it's an assassination or if it's some type of coup that the American government was part of. I think one of the most important points that, that Oliver Stone, um, gave voice to in JFK is is when he had Jim Garrison say to the effect I'm paraphrasing that a popular beloved president can be murdered in front of his wife in the middle of the day on a public street and the foundations of our government scarcely tremble is 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 a is a is a foreign concept that is, if the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, if they can allow that to happen and allow to be to squander their one chance at getting the investigation right, 
and yet nothing happened to them. Kennedy's dead. They move merrily on. They, in fact, get even more powerful. They are given more money to either fight the Vietnam War or to fight dissidents at home or what have you. The foundations of our government scarcely trembled. I think that's that's an excellent way of putting it. And and what does that tell you about um, what the motive of the intelligence agencies are in investigating things that might make the government or themselves look culpable in the very things that they are investigating? I think that's that that's what we have to keep in mind. And of course, 63, 64, just like um, Dulles said that, you know, people don't read that we can get away with this. Basically, we can get away with publishing a 900 page report, 26 volumes of testimony exhibits without an index, without any rhyme, reason or order. The reason we can do that is because no one's going to read it. We can give the appearance that, oh, look what we did. Look how thorough we were but confident that no one's going to read it and that even the academics that do read it, even the academics that come out and say, Hey, wait, there's something wrong here because we've got, you know, cross sections of, of Oswald's pubic hair in here. We've got Jack Ruby's mother's dental records from 1938. What the fuck is going on? No one's going to listen to them because what they're academics because you know, you don't understand this. So you got to realize that the Kennedy assassination took place at the perfect time. That is, it was before Watergate. So what, what, what should have been a watershed moment, we had to wait another 10 years before we realized the extent of the power and, and the power grab that can can bring down a president, bring down an agency, or try to bring down an agency when the church committee investigated the, the FBI um, and the CIA for for their covert and overt operations. I mean, it, it took the Senate committee to bring out the fact that that the CIA had had used the mafia um, doing their bidding in some of the things that they wanted to do. And of course, um, the FBI with COINTELPRO and and um, usurping so much power and uh, violating so many people's, countless people's civil rights and human rights during that time, um, it took a, it took a long time for someone to have the the sack to be able to investigate them and say this is what our government has done. And, and yet, and yet, the FBI still is still there. The CIA is still there, right? I mean, very few changes have been made, either in their in how much money they get, or their oversight, or you know, being accountable for what they've done over the years. If I had a time travel machine, I would go back in time to Lee Harvey Oswald and be like, "Hey, before you order that rifle, I want you to look at a straight razor or something. You know, take care of the downstairs before you start doing all this type of stuff, so they don't got nothing on you." Um, that's a joke. Obviously, I don't believe Oswald did it. But back to because I know you studied the assassination of Fred Hampton, and I know that's what you wanted to talk about as well too, because that is where a lot of your work is also invested in, and it's some a topic I'm uh, recently new to. Um, after speaking with Jeffrey Haas about it. And um, if you wanted to give me, uh, everyone out there listening, who's going to probably listen to this episode because it's JFK related, but did you want to give a breakdown of the Fred Hampton assassination real quick and then we could talk about it a little bit? Well, yeah, I, 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 recommend, I suggested to you that we talk about Fred Hampton, not only because I've been you know studying his life and his, his assassination for 30 years, but also because of the recently 
uh, released Shaka King film called Judas and the Black Messiah, which profiles Fred Hampton and one of the FBI informants who had infiltrated the Black Panther Party. His name was William O'Neill. So it was a, it was a, it was obviously introducing people to Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party, but then also uh, the story of William O'Neill and how he his his role as an informant led indirectly to Fred Hampton's death. Um, but Fred Hampton uh, is one of the underrated unsung heroes of of the Black Liberation Movement of the 1960s. Um, he was he he started in uh, his hometown of Maywood, Illinois, which is on the west side of of Chicago. Um, in high school, the first uh, the first reports that we have of the police looking into this young man was 1966. So when he was 19 years old, just out of high school, there's they've started a police intelligence uh, um, file on him. Uh, the FBI soon follows in 1967, putting him on the you know, rabble rouser index that this is the kind of person who's going to agitate um, um, protests and and uh, to to persuade people to to challenge the status quo and to improve the lives of people in his community. So he had he always had a sense of of community. He always had a sense of his people and of injustice. He himself very interested in the law. Um, actually taking pre-law classes uh, once he got out of high school. Um, and he was evolving in his, in his um, philosophy of his, his political philosophy, philosophy, his economic philosophy. So he goes from uh, being a very effective organizer of the youth in Maywood for the NAACP, starting and growing a youth branch of the NAACP in Maywood um, to embracing black nationalism and befriending Stokely Carmichael, uh, who was who was one of the originators of uh, a black power of the black power slogan and um, and more of the black nationalist um, uh, philosophies. And then, of course, being introduced into the Black Panther Party, which took a more Marxist view or socialist view that it wasn't a matter of race; it was a matter of class. It was a matter of economics that it doesn't matter if you're black or white if you're poor you're going to get shit on you're going to be you know you're going to be thrown in jail you're going to be shot at or, or abused by the police so he was he was evolving in his in his philosophies uh but as the deputy chairman of the black panther party in illinois which he co-founded with bobby rush uh he was incredibly successful so 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 he starts at a very limited level in his high school, Proviso East High School in Maywood. Then he, then he, you know, moves on to Maywood as a community itself, the entire city, where he's negotiating between students, parents, schools. Uh, he's being asked to to mediate meetings between um, blacks and whites, or uh, to have recreation center being put into Maywood because, of course, in the summer, a, a lot of inner city or predominantly black neighborhoods didn't have the same kind of resources that that white communities did. And then, of course, if they tried to go into those white communities to enjoy a swim or a basketball game or anything, they, of course, were were ostracized and, and 
physically and verbally abused. Um, so these are the kinds of things that he championed on a, on a very local level. Then, of course, when he had a vehicle like the Black Panther Party that was very much into community programs, feeding children before they went to school, uh, clothing, um, clothing drives, free health clinics, uh, free busing programs to the people who had been in prison or unjustly, you know, denied parole and awaiting trial. So they, you know, which of course is a problem we still have today, which is the, the irony just is, is sickening. Um, he had a platform now. He had more of a statewide platform in which to help his community and the surrounding communities, uh, eventually taking it not only to the state of Illinois, but also other states. He was considered the Midwest or regional um, leader of the Black Panther Party because he was making trips to uh, Detroit. He was making trips to New York to um, help other branches and chapters uh, follow the same kind of disciplinary uh, line that he was, same organizational line. Um, and it was incredibly successful to the point where the national leadership recognized what he was doing on a state and coastwide level and when the leadership found themselves in their own problems that is the top four members of the national black panther party uh huey newton had been in in jail since 1967 for uh killing a, uh, an oakland police officer so the minister of information or the minister of defense was in prison the chairman, Bobby Seale, he had just recently been arrested for uh, the Chicago 8. He was part of the Chicago 8, being blamed for the, the quote-unquote riot that happened during the Democratic National Convention in August 1968. He's in jail. Um, and then the Minister of Information, um, Eldridge Cleaver, was he was in um, exile in Algiers. So that means that the fourth in line, which was their chief of staff, his name was David Hilliard, he and Fred met several times and discussed that if David Hilliard was confronted with legal problems that would either see him join Cleaver in Algiers or if you had to go to prison, that Fred Hampton would take over. And if Fred had had a national platform then I, I think he would have been even more dangerous at that age when he was only 21 um, and would have created coalitions on a nationwide level, just like he had on a, on a local level. His rainbow coalition, which unified and gave political purpose to otherwise street gangs, and I put those in quotes, um, he did that very successfully in Chicago, working with, with dozens and dozens of organizations um, he would have done so on a national level. I think the Black Panther Party would have survived a lot longer. I think it would have been, uh, he would have brought the same kind of su success that he had to Illinois. And ultimately, I believe that's why uh, he was murdered. This might be speculation, um, but do you think that he was caught or he started being surveillanced, I guess, on an aspect of not only the things that he was doing in the communities, or do you think it was the people that he was making connections with? I have to feel like if they're already observing the Black Panther Party and certain other individuals, then they must have seen him and started to trace him and realize that now he's going because there are people in our history that are great speakers. They're fluent talkers. They can rile up a population with a power of passion that is dangerous for the government. It is something that they see and they get mad at. 
Absolutely. And especially in Chicago, when you have the 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 machinery, the democratic machinery of of Daly, um he he mentioned Hampton specifically about the successes that the Black Panther Party was having in programs that the city themselves should have taken care of. And that is exactly what Hampton's point was. One of the philosophies was to heighten the contradictions and to let people know and, and, to, and to let the, the community see those contradictions. So the city officials say, oh, we'll take care of you. We got your back. And of course, they never do. Things just keep getting worse. People still keep getting poorer. Um, schools keep uh, deteriorating. Um, housing projects keep going up and keep being, you know, uh, growing into dilapidation. Uh, but then the, here, come the, here comes the Black Panther Party, who's working with other community organizations for political awareness, for options that you can have to be fed, to be clothed, to go to school. They were doing what the city should have done and pledged to do, but never did. And that kind of success was pissing off the Daily Machine. So that's why Daly himself then um, had to get the, the, the agencies within the city who were working for him, like the state's attorney's office, like the attorney, the attorney general of the state of Illinois, uh, to investigate, surveil, to try to disrupt any way they could Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party. Because, you know, the FBI tried to use the same kind of thing against groups like the Black Panther Party, but in Chicago, it didn't work. That is, one of their modus operandi, the FBI, is to try to, if you have rival rival groups, you try to instigate them even more. You try to get them even more pissed off at each other. Agent provocateurs. Well, well, yeah, but but you don't even need an agent to do it. They did it through anonymous letters that they would send to Jeff Fort, who was the leader of the of the Blackstone Rangers, which was the rival group in Chicago against the Black Panther Party, and then um, letters to Fred Hampton, bad mouthing each other. And so it looks like, or it's supposed to have looked like, Jeff Fort was bad mouthing Hampton, Hampton was bad mouthing Fort, and if and if all this tension came to a head, they would just kill each other off. And the FBI, you know, FBI just had, you know sit back and, and let it happen that's what they were trying to to antagonize rifts that were already there and then the, you know no culpability but it didn't work fred hampton was entirely too smart for that um did they have shootouts well technically yes and, and that's 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 for another <laughs> that's for another podcast um but there was a truce between hampton and fort um and of course, Hampton unifying other groups in Chicago to be more productive, to be less destructive. Um, and that and that was really upsetting the status quo, the power structure of the status quo in in Chicago. And, and again, that's why so many so many things were working against Hampton and the Black Panther Party. But every time the FBI or the Chicago police raided their headquarters, doesn't matter how many times they burned, their stash of news of Black Panther Party newspapers or donations that the Black Panther Party received every single day in clothing or food. It doesn't matter how many times they would pull over Panther cars to harass them, to confiscate whatever was in the car. 
of course, for their intelligence division. It doesn't matter. The, the community rallied behind the Black Panther Party, kept giving donations of food, money, clothes. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was quite impressive, the effect that the Black Panthers and Fred Hampton in, in specifically had on uh, the, west side of, the west side of Chicago. Again, another speculation question, but do you think that the whole arrested charges on stolen ice cream or things of that sort were a way of kind of being like, hey, if you go any farther, bad things are going to happen to you. It's an it's I mean, they're trumped up charges, you could say. I mean, but that's the thing was this is this is kind of like a warning to you of like, don't do anything. And then once they saw he wasn't going to stop, I mean, do you think that the plot came from the FBI or do you think the plot came out of Chicago police? Uh, uh, both because they were cooperating with each other. They, they, the, the higher ups knew each other, had come through law school together, or had worked at, at you know, some, uh, some either for some judge together or some office together, some bureaucratic office together. But back to your point, one of the FBI's objective was to raise the height of paranoia in this country to the point where, and Jagger Hoover said this himself, that he wanted. People in America to think that there was an FBI agent luring behind every single um, post office box. You know the the letter boxes, you know the mailboxes that were on the street that was ubiquitous back in the sixties and are no longer no longer in existence today. Yeah, payphones are gone too. We know. Well, yeah. So, but 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 Hoover wanted that impression that were wanted people to be so afraid of the FBI that that people would think that there's an FBI agent hiding behind every one of those things, like a dumpster or, you know, telephone booth or, or a mailbox. Um, because that was exactly the kind of, um, uh, surveillance state, well, st surveillance state and technique that they used. So when you, if you attended a meeting of say, even something like, uh, well, even the NAACP, you just wanted to go to a meeting. A friend of yours had said, hey, uh, you know, Roy Wilkins is going to be in town and he's speaking at this library. Hey, you want to come? Yeah, sure. I'll come hear him speak. The FBI taking down the license plates of everybody in the parking lot or on the street. Now you're the, the, the net that the FBI used to be able to try to intimidate people, to try to um, prevent people from being... Um, become members of these kinds of groups. Uh, that's exactly what they would do, is that they would say, uh, we know you were at this meeting, um, but do you realize what this organization stands for or what they might do? Or, and, and look, if you knew that the FBI was on your ass back in, six, in the 60s, you would stop whatever it was you were doing. And that was the whole point. So it was about intimidation. It was about being associated with known criminal, criminals like the Black Panther Party. And the arrests themselves, the daily arrests, were part of that technique as well. Not only did they want to deplete the coffers of the Black Panther Party, in you know, because they had to bail everybody out or pay for the legal fees of those people arrested on trumped-up charges or or misdemeanors or things like that, but just the sheer repetition of being arrested every day and having to put out that money. But it was also this, yeah, the uh, the signal that this is what happens to you if you hang out with these people. This is what happens to you if you go to one of their programs. 
So even if even if you have a small, you know, uh, school age child and you simply wanted to provide them breakfast before they went to school and went to one of the churches or one of the um, locations that the Black Panther Party had the breakfast for children program, you would be swept up in that net, too. And that could be used against you to um, forcibly persuade you to not have anything more to do with the Black Panther Party. Um, so you asked, though. Who was initiating such a plan to take Fred Hampton out? I think that it it, it did not have to be a coordinated effort. Um, I think each of them tried to do what they could do, given where Fred Hampton was, given how smart he was, given how mature he was. Um, so the intelligence division of the Chicago Police Department, or what we call today the the red squad was initially supposed to raid his apartment not the chicago police and of course it wasn't the chicago police it was the state's attorney's office they had a they had a a, a little unit within the state's attorney's office called the special prosecutions unit and these were police officers who were detailed to that office uh but they were ultimately the ones who who conducted the raid on fred hampton's apartment in december of 1969 so i think it was just a cooperation and, and uh interagency cooperation because they have been surveilling this young man since 1966 so the last you know what three years of his life day in and day out he is being surveilled his mail is being opened his mother's phone the you know the home telephone he lived with his mother until october of 69 her phone was tapped um they were being photographed they were being recorded they were being infiltrated by uh agent provocateurs and other uh informants um it wasn't just the fbi it was the military intelligence group the 113th military intelligence group stationed in evanston it was also the uh, did i say the state's attorney's office yeah um so all of these agencies were found the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton threatening enough to the status quo to surveil him every day for three years until they killed him. When it came to his death, um, the night they raided his house and 120 shots were fired, and I think only one bullet was attributed to the Black Panthers, which was an accidental shot that was fired. Um, it was obviously over abuse or overpower of whatever they want to call whatever their version of sick justice i would say um but weren't they making a documentary when that happened about fred hampton's life and they kind of switched it over after the assassination of him and they filmed his house and kind of walked through to end the documentary yes luckily luckily there was a film crew in chicago and had been since 19 since they started in 1968 late 1968 it's called the film group inc and um, Mike Gray um, was was one the the principal. Uh, I don't know if he was the actual uh, if he actually actually filmed it or if he was one of the uh, producers and directors. Um, but they had already mentioned the Black Panther Party or profiled the Black Panther Party in its infancy in covering the um, Democratic Convention of 1968 in a documentary called American Revolution II. So, uh, but Mike Gray was so taken with this young leader, Fred Hampton, who was, as you had already mentioned, a, a phenomenal orator, uh, much like Malcolm, Mal Malcolm X was able to speak to any kind of audience. He was able to, to change his diction 
to fit whatever audience he was he was um, speaking to. And he was Fred Hampton was well he was <laughs> for a lack of a better term he was a star that when people wanted to hear about the Black Panther Party wanted a speaker at their event they wanted Fred Hampton. Of course, he couldn't be at three places at once. So other Black Panther Party members um, filled in, but Fred was the one they wanted. Fred was the one that was on the radio. He was on television. He was the one that they wanted. Um, now I've just completely lost my train. What, you, You're talking you about the documentary. Oh, yeah, the documentary. So um, at the time of the raid on his apartment, um, 14 police officers from the state's attorney's office were armed. Each of them were armed with two to three weapons apiece, and they were allowed to bring personal weapons from home if they wanted, not just their service revolvers. Everyone had their service revolvers, but they brought an additional either revolver, shotgun, or they also had a submachine gun. And eight of them um, actually entered the apartment one from you know one group from the the back door that was in the kitchen and the front door which was in the foyer um and they converged on the center of the apartment which is where nine people were staying at that at that point um and the result of it was fred hampton was killed um shot no less than five times uh mark clark who was the uh leader of the peoria branch in Illinois, had, was was up from Peoria for a couple of weeks and staying with, with Hampton. Uh, four other people were wounded and the rest were arrested for attempted murder, as you said, um, even though only one shot could ballistically be matched to any of the Panther weapons that were in the apartment. So it was not a shootout. It was, in fact, a shoot-in. The Panthers didn't have any time, any uh, you know, it was it was 4:30 in the morning, and of course, that the state's attorney's office claims that that was exactly why they decided to do a 4:30 in the morning to take them by surprise, so they would they would have least resistance. Well, he got that right, but for the press, because we have to continue to demonize the Black Panther Party, they said that they were immediately met with gunfire, and after telling the occupants of the apartment several times to stop fire, you know, to, to halt the fire, they continued to, they said, shoot it out, shoot it out. Of course, that that's fiction. It didn't happen. We can scientifically establish that. Um, so Mike Gray had started filming Fred and the Black Panther Party, I think in like January or February of 69, like I said, in, in the infancy of, of the, the, chapter of the Illinois Black Panther Party and wanted to do a documentary on that, um, focusing on Fred, but of course, including everybody in the party. Now, he was, <laughs> he was filling up until May, and it was in May that Fred was, was convicted of and sent to prison for his alleged stealing of 510 ice cream bars and distributing them to the children of maywood they pissed on the ice cream craig they pissed on the ice cream yep and they gave him two to five years even though he 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 didn't have a record now he had been arrested several times before but of course all of those were successfully negotiated and and charges were dismissed because fred was the go-to guy whenever shit went down in maywood or the surrounding areas blame it on fred because he was the leader right whether you're talking about the youth leader of the NAACP or he was just the leader of 
the youth in Maywood. If some shit went down, it was Fred Hampton's fault. But of course, none of those charges stuck. The only thing they could ever get Fred on, not, not, um, you know, sedition, not gun charges, but stealing ice cream. And he got two to five years for it. Anyway, he uh, started his, his prison sentence in late May and got out mid-August, right before his 21st birthday. So obviously they couldn't film much while Fred was in prison, but, uh, and they were continuing to, to film up until the assassination. One of the Panthers lawyers, his name was uh, Skip Andrews, um, he asked Mike the morning of the, the, the raid to come into the apartment and film it in its, in its original condition because the Chicago police, the state's attorney's office, and their crime lab had abandoned the apartment. Once everyone was loaded into the uh, meat wagons and the paddy wagons, they didn't want to stay there. They didn't want to deal with what was obviously going to be a severe community backlash. You're right. Oh, I have a question. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, you never wanted to uh, steal an ice cream before? I'd cut a bitch over like a nice SpongeBob popsicle. Now, for me, it would have to be a good humor um, toasted almond bar. Oh, um, damn. I didn't even think of that one. Yeah. But yeah, but not 510 of them. That's for damn sure. Maybe I one. Can, I could kill 510 of them. <laughs> So, um, so because the the law enforcement officers abandoned a crime scene, um, Skip Andrews really wanted to make sure that the apartment was was um, the evidence in the apartment, the condition of the apartment was was preserved on film, um, because the the police ransacked the place. Um, I've spoken to many. Uh, tactical officers over the years and I've asked them, okay, so if you go in, if you have a, a, a search warrant for something, you break in, scuffles, you know, obviously a fight ensues and, and it becomes a crime scene because someone's killed. What do you do then? And he says, well, without disturbing any of the scene, you still have an obligation to to uh, confiscate whatever it was the search warrant says you can. But from the moment that someone is killed, it becomes a crime scene. So you have to do everything you can to preserve that. You can't ransack the place. You can't look for anything you want. You can't overturn stuff. A crime happened. Whether or not you're culpable in that crime, whether or not the cops committed that crime, it doesn't matter. So they should have treated it as a crime scene and immediately sealed off the apartment. Of course, they didn't. The coroner of uh, Cook County did not seal Fred Hampton's apartment until December 17th. So two weeks after the assassination, that's when they sealed the apartment. But, but in the interim, after um, Mike Gray had filmed the apartment, after an independent ballistics expert um, by the name of, of Herbert McDonald, went in and did a ballistics test and collected some evidence the black panther party through no fault of their own I, I i'm not gonna i'm not gonna you know get on them too much for this but they conducted daily tours through fred hampton's apartment like right through into the front door through the apartment out the back door hundreds of them every single day so people were there they could have picked up and probably did pick up 
numerous casings or slugs or cartridges or fragments or any souvenirs they possibly could. So that by the time the coroner actually put a seal on the apartment, it had been the 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 crime scene had been so desiccated, it 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 wouldn't have legally been relevant. It it wouldn't have mattered at that point. Any any search that that the um, crime lab, the, the CPD crime lab, or anyone else did in that apartment, it, it wouldn't have. I don't even think it would, would have been admissible in 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 evidence. I don't because. I, You've been so contaminated. I think it really shows about our legal system when something like that happens. I think if you look at the message that it sends to the people compared to the message that the legal system would get out of it, I think the best chance was letting the people see the horrible disaster for themselves. I mean, you have to think of every every person that could have been a possible person that picked up a casing or something like that. That's something that stays on a goes on a necklace. It goes on in their house. They look at it and every day they're reminded of an incident where obviously police force was used and in a way that was a hundred percent unethical and unreasoned or un it was unprovoked. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um yeah so we don't know we can't know specifically how many um shots were fired because here's the here's the other kicker is that when the officers assembled prior to the raid and got all of their munitions together they checked out ammunition from whatever they call it the ammo locker at, at the cpd um we don't have an accurate count of what they took or what they returned because they did not immediately give up their weapons, the weapons that they used in the raid for ballistic study. It, it was, it was several days, several days later that they did that, but they basically just threw shit in a box, you know, whatever was used up, they threw it in a box and that was that. So there was no way to determine whose bullets came from what gun, so forth and so on. I mean, based on the gun, obviously, but they all had 38s. That was the one thing. Um, but but it was it was absolute mess and not not all of the officers guns can be accounted for and not all of the ammunition that they used or could have used has been accounted for so we really don't know how many shots um actually one of the officers said if 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 the shootout you know was 500 shots and lasted 10 minutes i wouldn't be surprised well that's pretty funny because well that's 500 you know 499 for the police and one for the for the panthers it's even worse than we imagined and in fact it was the part in um, the murder of Fred Hampton, which is half of, of Fred Hampton speaking and some of the things that they did as, as an organization, then becomes an evidentiary video of the apartment and the police's reconstruction of the raid. You know, they put tape on a, on a big floor and it was televised. It was televised. It was, you know, filmed for television uh, because only the police officers... Um, version of the events were going to be you know uh, uh amplified like that uh these kind of things are are the second half of the documentary called the, the murder of fred hampton but when mike andrew mike uh, gray first gets there and skip andrews is picking stuff up when fred was 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 shot to death in his bed they then went over to his bed took him by his wrist because he was on his stomach. So took him by his left wrist and dragged him off his bed onto the floor and into the doorway between the dining room and Fred Hampton's bedroom. And so he laid across that doorway. 
Now the door had fallen over because they didn't they didn't use a door for the actual door bedroom. They used it to keep rats from getting into the kitchen. So it was laid across where the kitchen is and during the raid it had fallen over on the floor and that's what they dragged Fred onto. So when Mike Gray gets into the apartment there are posters and newspapers on the door he lifts them up and they're just and they're just stuck with fred hampton's blood and so it's this this morbid sickening peeling of this blood-soaked paper until finally he he lifts up the door to show the the, you know the blood stains and and very sickening actually um, but that's exactly what he wanted Mike Gray to be able to document is 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 the viciousness, the the complete and utter destruction of walls, paint cans, furniture, but also human beings. Blood trails, blood, you know, blood, uh, Fred Hammond's blood soaked um, mattress. Um, but it was very important. It was it was sickening and it was very disturbing to, to watch, but it was necessary because nobody because we wouldn't have captured this otherwise. We would never have known the extent from your view as a historian and you kind of start looking into this and how a lot of this doesn't get talked about in our history books, either if it's the JFK, JFK assassination, MLK assassination, RFK assassination, Fred Hampton's assassination, Sam Cooke's assassination, if you want. There's plenty of other ones out there that you can really point at that land in this. So when you hear all this and you see all this and you know all this and it's not being taught and you're trying to understand and whenever you do like you talking to me now i'm with you i understand because i've known it and i've looked into it as well too from other guests and things of that sort but for an average person either they just look they go this is too much and they turn it off or they roll their eyes and say conspiracy because they don't want the world to they don't want the world to be that dark but it is and if we don't talk about it and if we don't recognize our history then you get into this area where it just keeps repeating itself absolutely we've had we've had um just morbidly ugly times in our history and just because we don't look at them doesn't mean they didn't happen and like you said if we don't look at them and don't recognize the inhumanity um then we will do it again and we won't recognize it when we when it's shown again whether we're talking about culpability of our intelligence agencies in something they've done or something they're covering up um the lack of transparency in our government um, all of these things, we have to be able to see the signs of them from uh, years past. And yes, we see a pattern of political assassinations in the 1960s and 70s. And while the motivation might not be political, certainly the consequence of these deaths were political. So um, it is absolutely imperative that we look for these patterns, especially when it's when it's intelligence agencies who are claiming that they are protecting the majority of Americans from these threats. Of course, they never tell you what the threats are. Uh, conservatives, Republicans, intelligence agencies throughout the years, they have loved to, to create bogeymen but never, never telling, never describing it to you, never telling you what it came from or how it arrived or how it got here. Nothing, nothing specific about it, just what to be afraid of. And what you're supposed to be afraid of in the 1960s are angry black people, right? And so you demonize them. You say, well, look at that. They have guns. 
Yeah, they have guns. The same guns that you now claim 60 years later is your constitutional God-given right to carry. Unless, of course, back in 60, in the 60s, you were black. Then you can't carry a gun. Oh, we got to change. We got to change the laws. That was where one of the very first things that the National Black Panther Party confronted was it, it was it was founded in in October of '66, and by May of '67, because the Black Panther Party decided to pick up the gun and embrace the philosophy of of Robert Williams and Malcolm X in self defense. Following the law, though, because the the guns were legally purchased, anybody who had who were, who was on uh, probation couldn't have a gun. They didn't, so they were not just, you know, um, members of a black liberation, black nationalist slash Marxist leanings group. They were also very well steeped in the law, because they did not want to give the cops any more reason to take away their rights or put them in jail or like we're confronted with now killing them over over nothing so they tried to change the laws in california simply because the black Panther party decided to legally pick up the gun in in defense of their actions which of course were community-based we are trying to protect the people from the cops um and and that doesn't seem so far-fetched nowadays does it to have to to have to police the police. Gee, I've, I've heard that before. But anyway, that was certainly in the 1960s. But the patterns of the different kinds of people who were who were assassinated throughout those 10 years, it's 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 mind boggling from some from somebody people as as seemingly docile like Medgar Evers or Martin Luther King. Actually, Martin Luther King wasn't quite as docile as he's made out to be, but it's it makes for an easier national holiday um, to the more militant and radical like Malcolm X and Fred Hampton or any of the other 30 some Black Panther Party members who were killed um, within their tenure. Um, you look at the patterns of what was being affected by their deaths. How was how was how was the status quo in fact affected by their deaths? Um, how did things change? How did things stay the same? And you look at those, those patterns and those um, elements and, it, and, it's, and it's no wonder we do not have a whole lot of confidence left in, in the government or in their investigative bodies when they say that they are investigating something. And I'm talking about even contemporarily like either 9-11 or the Iran-Contra scandal or uh, shit, even the Challenger shuttle explosion, <laughs> you know, that that was, com was so completely mishandled. Uh, so something as benign of a, of a national tragedy, something that, you know, couldn't have been foreseen, but it turns out it could have been foreseen. So um, we just have to remain vigilant in looking at some of the more ugly things in life. Uh, maybe that's why we're apathetic about uh, homeless people or or people who are hungry uh, or people who are trapped in um, the criminal justice system because they can't afford bail or they can't afford a lawyer or what have you or because the uh, you know what they were initially arrested for and incarcerated for is no longer illegal um, so that's that's unfortunately where we find ourselves is some is is some of the ugliness um even even today uh that that more and more 
larger part of society doesn't want to look at don't want to talk about it in high school don't want to talk about so don't want to talk about it in schools so it's not enough not to talk about it now we're going to also ban books that uh make us uncomfortable or uh show how discriminatory we've been and how we can how much we continue to be um yeah so i urge everybody to be vigilant because democracy is participatory and ensuring our rights is is not going to come about by um being apathetic Craig, where can people find your links, man? I really appreciate you giving me the time to talk on my show. Um, the appreciation is all mine. And uh, my schematic and my list, the map and list of the eyewitnesses uh, can be found on craigchaconi.wordpress.com. And you can order that through there um, and see. And and I, I, I have a, a picture of, of the schematic and the book and talk about what's inside the book. Um. I have not yet uh, created anything that's online about Fred Hampton, but I, I plan to in the next in the upcoming months. I would like to do a thorough review, not review, um, a critique of of Judas and the Black Messiah, the the Shaka King film that came out last year. Not because I don't, not because I think that <laughs> Hollywood should be criticized every time they do a historical drama, right? Uh, because we all have movies that we enjoy watching that we know are historically inaccurate, whether it's Tucker, whether it's the Buddy Holly story, whether the it's new Ultra film is a fucking travesty. Well, so all these films, we know we, we know the trappings of Hollywood and that they want to try to appeal uh, to people on, 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 a, on a broad level as possible. So we make it as as um, consumptive as possible. The most amount of people will watch this because, you know, it's only two hours or a little over two hours and it's a love story. It's a it's a you know, it's a goodbye, good guy, bad guy kind of thing where you actually I, I think King's purpose was to at the end of the movie feel sorry for William O'Neill, which is preposterous. But I simply want to give people the alternate to the movie. This is what this is what the movie portrays, but this is what actually happened without saying, well, Shaka King shouldn't have done that or shouldn't have casted that person or shouldn't have, you know, made this composite character or no, no, no. Because I know that Shaka King isn't an historian and Judas and the Black Messiah is not a documentary. I simply want to give people that altern alternative. Uh, this is what actually happened in, in comparison. So when you watch Judas and the Black Messiah, you can at least if you want to have an understanding of what actually happened and who the players were and why it happened, I would like to do that on a blog. And I, and I, I'm probably going to do that within the next few months, but of course, with your generosity and, uh, uh, you making these subjects part of the consciousness, I think that you'll, you'll be able to help me put up a new, um, link if 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 i create more stuff i mean i'm also doing a, a database on robert kennedy's eyewitnesses and his in his assassination so so as i create things i'm sure you will add the links as as i create them i'm gonna watch the judas and black messiah movie and i'm gonna have you and jeffrey haas on here so i can talk to you about the movie and you can tell me what was wrong about it and what was improper about it 
well, it was some of the more egregious things, and and I, I would be in, I would be honored to to watch it or to talk about it with Jeffrey Haas, given that he was one of the main players in this in the the civil trial that was brought against the survivors of the raid. Uh, I mean, he's an important historical figure and has a, a really unique perspective on Fred Hampton, the Black Panther Party, and of course, are the FBI and the criminal justice system. Um, but I'd be really curious as to what he thought of the film, because Shaka King did not, he, he did not consult. Well, there have only been two people who have written about Fred Hampton, and the books weren't specifically about Fred Hampton. Haas wrote about Fred Hampton's assassination and the civil trial itself, um, and Jacoby Williams, who wrote uh, Bullet or the Ballot, uh, it was a history of the Illinois Black Panther Party, Obviously, Fred played predominantly in that book, but it was not about Fred Hampton. So there's been no book written about Fred Hampton. But Shaka King didn't consult Jacoby Williams, never consulted Jeffrey Haas, probably read their books and based things in the movie on it, but of course never gave them credit for it. So in watching the film, I'm surprised that they got so much wrong that they wouldn't have gotten wrong if they had just done the, the bare minimum of research into Fred Hampton and the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, but they didn't. So, Mama, I'm, I'm about to say I'm gonna link all your links in the description. I'll have to set it up. I don't want to say anything because I don't want to plan a date yet. But oh, I'll just, but you but you want to get your listeners really you know uh, excited about that prospect. <laughs> uh, Craig, it's been a pleasure chatting with you again, man. It really has, Robbie. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to link all your links in the description. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of